If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. The Ku Klux Klan was on the rise, waging a campaign of intimidation and violence. One of their aims was to stop Black Americans exercising the voting rights they'd won in the aftermath of the Civil War. Congress responded with the Enforcement Act of 1870. Part of that law, Section 241, made it a crime for two or more people to, quote, conspire to injure, oppress, threaten, or intimidate anyone for exercising their rights under the Constitution or federal law. This, of course, included the right to vote. The use of Section 241 has expanded beyond its race-based origins over the past 150 years to apply more broadly to election interference. And it's an important part of the extraordinary case against Donald Trump for his attempts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. I'm Charlotte Howard. This is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what do the latest charges against Donald Trump mean for him and for American democracy? Donald Trump has been charged with the most serious political crime it is possible to commit in a democracy. A special counsel alleges that he plotted to overturn the 2020 election results, knowing that his claims of fraud were false. But there's little sign that the case will shake Republican faith in the former president. How will this indictment affect the 2024 election? John Prito is away today, though he had a very busy start of the week writing about this indictment. And we have here today John Fasman and Idris Kaloon. It has been an extraordinary week in the news. How are you both? I'm okay, thanks. It's good to be back. And Idris, you've been very busy writing about this as well. How has your week been? Yeah, it's been a bit busy, but I did get some time to watch the Barbie movie, which was spectacular. Have you watched it? Do you have thoughts? I have not yet seen it. I see about one movie a year, and I think this will be my movie for 2023, but I've not managed to make it to a theater yet. It was very enjoyable. It was, it was you know, 50% better than it needed to be to be as successful as it was. I like that as a calibration for assessing movies. Most movies I see are about 24% better than they needed to be to be a success, but we can do a statistical analysis of them. So the indictment made for a different form of entertaining reading, more in the horror genre. We are recording this on Thursday morning, and by the time you listen to this, we're expecting Donald Trump to have appeared in court. John, for anyone who hasn't read the indictment, can you give us a summary of the case? There are four counts that Jack Smith has levied against Donald Trump, and they all pertain more or less to the same set of actions. And those actions are exactly what you would expect. They charge Donald Trump and his six unindicted co-conspirators with 
quote, using knowingly false claims of election fraud to impede the election certification. So that includes setting up and organizing fraudulent slates of electors. It includes sending letters to states with false claims that the Justice Department found potentially results altering election fraud. It includes false claims regarding the vice president's power during the election certification. It includes the charge that these claims were false, Jack Smith says, and the defendant knew they were false. So that's the first count. That's conspiracy to defraud the United States. Counts two and three are conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, and that is the certification of the election results. They incorporate the previous set of allegations. And count four is the civil rights charge. And here, the party that Smith alleges was injured is not the United States itself, but it is, as you said in the opening, individuals who have been injured, oppressed, threatened, or intimidated out of their right to vote and have their votes counted. So it's basically four legal theories pertaining to the same set of actions. This is a real belt and braces sort of indictment, right? If one count doesn't work, then there's always the other count to fall back on. I think it's equally important to note what Smith hasn't charged, right? He hasn't charged Donald Trump with incitement. It's a crime to incite a rebellion against the United States. I think a lot of people on the left hoped that Smith would look at what Donald Trump said at that rally on January 6th and charge him with incitement. He hasn't done that. He also hasn't charged seditious conspiracy, which is the charge that convicted a number of Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. That would have required Smith to show that Trump intended to spark a violent riot on January 6th, rather than just arguing, as I think Trump will, that it was a political protest that got out of hand. So it seems to me Of course, it's large and unprecedented and momentous, but it was a very, very carefully crafted indictment in that it sticks as much as possible to Donald Trump's actions, not to his words. So, Idris, we know now, of course, what's been in the indictment, and you've been thinking about how Donald Trump's legal team might respond to it, right? Yeah, that's right. And one thing, John, also that I hoped would be in the indictment, but we didn't get much news of was what exactly Trump was doing in the White House when uh, all of this was going down. So I guess for all the fact finding, we didn't get information about that. But Trump, of course, denies all these charges. He sees them as the product of a witch hunt. He's called Jack Smith all sorts of names. But to get a sense of what the legal defense was going to be, we spoke to Sarah Isker, who worked for a time as a spokesperson for Donald Trump's Department of Justice, but is now a legal commentator. She works for the conservative website, The Dispatch, hosts a podcast of her own called Advisory Opinions. And she explained to me why she thinks that the case against Donald Trump is going to be less easy to prove than some people might think. What we have here are four charges, three statutes, and then sort of four buckets of activities that the special counsel is going to point to as Donald Trump's sort of criminal actions. So let's start with the statutes. All of them require that the prosecution prove Donald Trump's state of mind. That is just not a great position to be in no matter what, (laughs) to have to show what someone was thinking when they did something. And let me tell you why that's the case. So for instance, there is no law against sending in a fake slate of electors. We don't have, you know, 18 USC 32, don't send in fake slates of electors. What we have is a much broader, vaguer law about defrauding the United States, and depriving someone of their civil right to vote. And in order to meet any of those, you have to prove that someone intended to do those things. Donald Trump was saying things that were untrue. 
A lot of people told Donald Trump that they were untrue. The prosecution will have no problem proving both of those things. And that's not enough. They'll have to prove that Donald Trump knew that what he was saying was untrue. This is stupid, right? The law is dumb then if we always have to prove intent. What, so now I can break into your house and steal your TV as long as I swear under oath that I thought it was my TV? Well, no, because actually when it comes to that statutory law that you're violating, there's not a specific intent requirement. It's a really narrow statute about robbery. You can't enter someone else's house even if you think they have your TV. But Congress didn't draw the laws these ways. And so these all have intent requirements. And so just starting right off the bat, that's a much steeper, tougher hill to climb. You know, you see in the indictment, the prosecutor try to make the, and, and it just asserts, right, that Donald Trump knew that these claims were false, right? It says that right at the beginning. It provides some basis for that throughout. It says things like, quotes him saying to a Justice Department official, just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to the Republicans and me. And it's trying to kind of draw out this portrait of his state of mind through some of these quotes. Maybe we don't know what else will emerge. But how does one even go about proving that? Yeah. So, I mean, that's how you're going to do it. You're going to sort of build it piece by piece. What's interesting is that in a lot of criminal laws, the standard is would a reasonable person know what they were saying was false? Again, that's not going to be the standard here. Even if every reasonable person would know the election wasn't stolen, if Donald Trump believed it was, that's a problem for the prosecution. However, you don't have to suspend your own mental acuity as a juror. So we're going to have 12 Americans on this jury. And I don't think it's enough, for instance, to say, well, the attorney general told him it wasn't stolen. His White House lawyers told him it wasn't stolen. State election officials told him it wasn't stolen. Because Donald Trump's going to say, yeah, but I had these other lawyers telling me it was. John Eastman, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. And so I chose to believe them. I liked what they were saying more. Uh, you know, that was the result that I wanted. And so if they were saying it was stolen, I believe them. But the prosecution can certainly bring in evidence, like you said, of him sort of winking at DOJ officials, or they have one witness who says that he referred to Sidney Powell's theories about election fraud as, quote, crazy. But you're gonna have to convince a jury that Donald Trump is lying, as in he's lying to you now in this trial, that he does not believe the election is stolen do you think one out of 12 people might believe Donald Trump? I think a lot of people from the outside look at January 6th. They see not only the crime that was committed, but also what it meant in the attempt to overturn the kind of basic premise of a republic. And they know who that was meant to support. And they just wonder, how is it possible that there isn't an easy criminal conviction that can be made here? And it does seem harder than people think. Trump even said himself, why didn't they do this two and a half years ago? Because it was very complicated, right? Do you think the problem was one of legal methodology or something else? It was just not something that American law was designed to even contemplate. Certainly the latter. Again, this is such a clearly impeachable offense. It's why he was, Donald Trump was impeached immediately uh, after January 6th. That impeachment failed in the Senate. And so then the question is, and again, I'm right there with you and with those Americans who are frustrated by that. Like, OK, well, then we need to find some other way. He should be punished. Well, not every wrong has a criminal law attached to it. And so part of the punishment is don't elect him again or elect senators who will convict him in the Senate for things he was impeached for. Those are all the safety nets that we have in our country. 
it is not a good idea to say this thing was wrong and now we must go in search of a way to charge it criminally. Show me the man, I'll show you the crime problem. I am not sympathetic to that part of the argument. In order to hold someone responsible for the actions of someone else, you've got to show that they were part of it, that they took some overt action to help them, encourage them. You'll notice that in this 45-page indictment, incitement was not charged. And there's a lot of other really aggressive legal theories in here. The fact that they did not think they could include incitement on January 6th, I think is important. And I think people should pay attention to that. We really value free speech in this country. You're allowed to lie. That's not a crime to lie. But the question we're going to have to answer is, okay, but did Donald Trump in sowing chaos in our elections, if he knew that what he was doing was lying, are we going to say that's a crime? Idris, I think that's the core of the question here, which is that there's a difference between something being abhorrent and something being illegal. How convinced are you by the indictment as put forth by Jack Smith versus the problems with it that Sarah outlined? I think it's an unprecedented case, you know, uh, trying a president for attempting to overturn an election result for which the crimes, like she said, aren't written down incredibly clearly. So if you read the case and just as a layperson, if you were to read what the charges are, conspiracy to obstruct an official governmental proceeding, conspiracy to defraud the United States, these all seem like somewhat esoteric charges. So the legal theory is by necessity going to have to be novel, and novel legal theories are simply harder to prove. So I I think she's right on that count, and I think that the idea that this is a slam dunk is far from true. Now, the other cases that are pending against Trump, I think, are a bit different. You know, the mishandling of classified information, which resulted in an indictment also by Jack Smith in Florida, that is a lot more cut and dry. You know, there are clear criminal consequences for retaining highly sensitive classified information. And then there are pictures of boxes in Mar-a-Lago. That's a pretty legible charge. The ones in New York about Trump's payments to Stormy Daniels and whether or not that violated campaign finance law also rests on a novel legal theory. So I'm much less sure about that one. And then we don't know, but we probably expect that there will be state level charges in Georgia over his attempts to overturn the election result there. I think Georgia has more clear-cut laws in the books about conspiracy to solicit election fraud, and that might be clearer. But I think in this case, although it is, like you said, the most important in terms of its import to democracy, is also not one of the easier cases that is currently arrayed against Donald Trump. One of the things I was struck by in reading the case is that there isn't much that's new, but seeing it laid out in this way is so striking, not just the case in Georgia, which I think most people by now are quite familiar with, in which he called up the Secretary of State and asked him to find a certain number of votes, almost 12,000 votes that would have changed the outcome. But also these examples in other states, in Michigan and Arizona, in which the activities that you see described in the indictment are just so counter to, I think, any reasonable person's assessment of how an election should go. But that subjective assessment, that reaction against those activities, as we've heard, doesn't necessarily mean that they were illegal. John, how convinced are you by the indictment or what struck you about it? The striking thing about the indictment, to my mind, was, as you say, it was extraordinary to see it all laid out there. We sort of knew what happened in each of these different states, but to see it listed in one 45-page indictment was extraordinary. The thing that links activities in all of those states 
is that Trump and his allies made specific claims that were denied by the people who would know most about them. And that, I think, leads to one wrinkle in the case that Sarah Isger didn't mention, but that's worth noting. And that is that prosecutors in criminal cases, especially federal cases, can make a claim of willful blindness. And what that means is that even if they can't prove the defendant absolutely knew that an activity was wrong, or in this case, that a statement was false, they can argue that the totality of evidence amounts to knowledge. That is, he was being willfully blind to the truth, willfully ignorant, and that for criminal law purposes, that is basically the same thing as knowing they were false. So if Smith can't prove in court what Donald Trump knew beyond a reasonable doubt, he could fall back on that and say, look, everyone was telling him that every specific claim he was advancing was false. He was relying on information from a lawyer who he called crazy. He really should have known it was false, even if he didn't. I'm so glad you mentioned that, John, because that was one of the things that really jumped out at me as well. And I'll go and read part of the indictment, which I think is very convincing on this. So Jack Smith writes, in fact, the defendant was notified repeatedly that his claims were untrue, often by the people on whom he relied for candid advice on important matters and who were best positioned to know the facts. And he deliberately disregarded the truth. And then the indictment lists them. So the vice president, senior leaders of the Justice Department, the director of national intelligence, the cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency within the Department of Homeland Security, several senior White House attorneys, and other staffers on his reelection campaign, state legislators and officials, state and federal courts. It's a very long list of people who were telling him that his claims were false. And... Reading the indictment, I was reminded of a truly bad song that we have for some strange reason referenced on this show before, which is Shaggy's It Wasn't Me. But in that song, you have someone who is confronted with a series of indisputable facts that they nonetheless continue to dispute. Okay, we're going to learn more about Jack Smith, who's the man prosecuting Donald Trump, in a moment. But first, the usual reminder that we would love it if you took out a subscription to The Economist if you don't have one already. It will give you full access to all our journalism, and it's because of our subscribers that we can do all of the reporting and writing and podcasting that we do. So thank you to everyone who already subscribes, and I hope the rest of you consider taking out a subscription as well. Idris and John, what have you enjoyed from our coverage recently? I really liked Catherine Nixie's piece last week in our culture section about bemoaning the death of the hatchet job in criticism, which is not only a good point, but also fantastically rendered with some choice anecdotes from history. So I would highly recommend that people read it. It had me laughing at many points. John, what about you? I want to put in a second plug for that piece. It was just delightful. This week, what I think I liked most was our brilliant colleague Henry Trix's long profile of Larry Fink. As I say, it's long, but it's really engaging, thorough, very thoughtful. And as with everything Henry does, it's just beautifully written. Yeah, we have a special summer double issue out, which includes all kinds of in-depth features, including the one that John just referenced on Larry Fink by Henry Trix. But there are an array of pieces that I think people will really enjoy from our sister publication, 1843. So I'll put in a plug for those as well. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It is in the notes for this episode. Good evening. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. 
It took Jack Smith eight and a half months to bring his latest charges against Donald Trump after being hired by Attorney General Merrick Garland last November. Today, I signed an order appointing Jack Smith to serve as special counsel. It's his highest profile job in an already storied career. The economist Steve Maisie has been reading Smith's CV. Jack Smith is 54 years old. He is a Harvard Law School graduate. He's been a prosecutor for almost all of his career. He started out at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, then crossed the East River to take a position at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, prosecuting cases involving gangs, public corruption, and fraud. He then spent a couple of years as an investigator at The Hague, the International Criminal Court, and then made his way back to the Justice Department in 2010, where he became the head of the Public Integrity Unit for five years. While at the DOJ, Smith prosecuted several public officials for corruption. In the early months of the Trump administration, Smith was acting U.S. attorney. And then, in 2018, he moved back to The Hague to act as chief prosecutor for a court investigating war crimes in Kosovo. He was there when Garland appointed him. Throughout his career, Jack Smith has built a reputation as an impartial and determined prosecutor who leads teams with energy and focus to follow the facts wherever they lead. Well, Jack Smith has a reputation for being shrewd, very disciplined, and fair. Characteristics that you would want in a special counsel for cases with such searingly political overtones. And he's fast. He's a competitive runner and a triathlete, having completed at least nine Ironmans around the world. Smith has represented Team USA twice at the World Triathlon Championships. He has applied the same strenuous, aggressive approach here. Time was of the essence last fall when Garland appointed him. Smith had to get complex investigations, two of them, up and running quickly and concluded in time to at least plausibly hold trials before the 2024 election. In this case, my office will seek a speedy trial so that our evidence can be tested in court and judged by a jury of citizens. So far, he has delivered, and he's tough. He doesn't seem to take guff from anyone. And I'd add that his charging decisions in this case show discipline and some cunning. He kept this case focused on one defendant, Donald Trump, saving potential prosecutions of others of those co-conspirators for separate cases. And he demurred on a charge that the January 6th committee had recommended, which is or was incitement to insurrection. That charge would have been much more difficult to prove given First Amendment free speech doctrine and probably significantly slowed down the prosecution. The Department of Justice has long recognized that in certain extraordinary cases, it is in the public interest to appoint a special prosecutor to independently manage an investigation and prosecution. Special counsels are lawyers appointed by the attorney general to take charge of a politically sensitive investigation when the impartiality of the DOJ could be questioned if personnel from the department itself pursued the case. In earlier eras, special counsels went by other monikers, independent counsel or special prosecutors. That latter term might sound familiar from the Watergate era, when there were a string of special prosecutors, most of whom were fired or resigned under pressure as the investigation into Richard Nixon played out. 
A bit more recently, we had an independent counsel in the Monica Lewinsky affair during Bill Clinton's time in the White House. That was Kenneth Starr. And of course, Robert Mueller was special counsel investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election that led to the first impeachment of Donald Trump. I have an idea. Get deranged Jack Smith to take just a tiny portion of the millions of dollars he's spending illegally targeting me and let him go to the White House with his army of thugs to solve. It was inevitable that Donald Trump would rail against these latest charges. He's told his supporters that the indictment is, quote, fake, the DOJ is weaponized, and Jack Smith is deranged. Steve Maisie thinks that Smith is the right man for this high-profile and politically sensitive case. Well, it is a pretty tricky thing to be investigating and then prosecuting a former president who is also running for president as the sitting president's chief rival. But the DOJ could have done a lot of damage to the rule of law and to democracy itself if it just let those things go uninvestigated because of the awkward politics. And as for calling Jack Smith deranged, (laughs) by all accounts, Smith has quite a firm grip on reality and is pretty sober and careful. It seems to me a little like calling the Dalai Lama boorish and abrasive. So, John, I was struck by Trump's response to this, which is not at all unpredictable. He clearly wants this charge to be one in a string of frivolous, corrupt cases that are brought against him. The Trump campaign called it, quote, the latest corrupt chapter in the continued pathetic attempt by the Biden crime family, capital C, capital F, and their weaponized Department of Justice to interfere with the 2024 presidential election. And I just thought that was such an amazing game of jujitsu in which Trump takes the truth that he wanted to meddle in the last election and instead makes it that Biden wants to meddle in this one. And at the heart of that is this idea that the special counsel is effectively an arm of Joe Biden himself. So how true is that or not? Historically, it's untrue. I mean, you only have to look at Ken Starr, who Steve briefly mentioned. He was appointed by Bill Clinton's attorney general, Janet Reno, in 1994 to look into the Whitewater real estate deal. He spent five years. His investigation was exceptionally wide-ranging. He ended up turning up evidence of Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky that got him impeached. And so if he was, in fact, working for Janet Reno, working for Bill Clinton, that wouldn't have happened. The independent counsel tends to be, as the name suggests, independent. They are wide-ranging. The risk is that it turns into an extremely broad sort of witch hunt, but that doesn't seem to be what Jack Smith has done here. And so I don't think the evidence is there to say that he is operating as an arm of the Biden administration, even though, of course, that is what Trump and his allies will charge. Now, of course, Ken Starr was called an independent counsel. Jack Smith is called a special counsel. But in function, they're more or less the same thing. They are brought in by the attorney general to avoid an appearance of undue influence. They have tremendous leeway in how they operate, tremendous independence to how they operate. And they're more or less the same. Idris, it seems like there might be more to come from Jack Smith. In his statement around the release of the indictment, he said, our investigation of other individuals continues. And in the indictment itself, there are a series of unnamed co-conspirators. And so what is still out there as an unopened question? Do you think there might be additional charges? What should we make of that 
investigation of other individuals and those unnamed co-conspirators in the indictment. Well, we don't know whether or not there are going to be other charges. By limiting this indictment to just Donald Trump, he reduced the complexity of bringing this case to trial and increased the probability that it begins before the November 2024 election. Although, given how easy it is to delay legal proceedings and the availability of appeals, I doubt that this case will be wrapped up before votes are cast in November 2024. There might be, you know, separate indictments filed. You know, there's been a messy history with other Trump courtiers who have turned witness for the prosecution, such as Michael Cohen. You can imagine an aggressive prosecutor like Jack Smith pursuing that as well. But there is a lot that we don't yet know. So before we move on then, John, can you outline the timing of this? Because I was struck by the fact that someone can run for president from prison, (laughs) But it doesn't seem likely that the case will be settled right before the election. So tell me about the timing for what happens next. Not only can someone run for president from prison, someone has. Eugene V. Debs, the socialist candidate, ran from prison in 1920 and got about 3% of the vote. So the timing is a very good question. We'll know more. We're recording this, by the way, on Thursday morning. Donald Trump is due to appear to be arraigned this afternoon. And I suspect what's going to happen is there'll be a real tussle over timing. Jack Smith will want to get this done as quickly as possible. He will argue that it is of material interest to the American people to know whether one of the major party candidates is a criminal before they cast their votes on Election Day. Trump's team, by contrast, I suspect will try to slow it down. His attorney, John Lauro, already said as much that he doesn't want Trump to be railroaded, that having a fair trial is more important than having a speedy trial. So I think the Trump team gambit will be to try to delay this as much as possible until after the election, hope he wins, and then have him dismiss the charges, pardon himself, fire Jack Smith, do something of that nature to sort of obviate the issue. So that brings us back to an argument that John Prudhoe made in this week's paper, which is that because it's going to take time for this case to work its way through the courts and because of what you just outlined in terms of president being able to run from prison, Donald Trump's prospects in the 2024 election are really going to be decided by voters, not by the courts. So we'll be back in a moment to consider the political consequences of this indictment. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. Our colleague James Bennett writes The Economist's U.S. column, Lexington. I spoke to James this week and asked him what stood out most from the indictment. You know, Charlotte, there's not a whole lot we didn't know in terms of the fact pattern here. What is powerful is to read this 45-page indictment and just encounter again and honestly to be shocked again by the sheer accretion of fact, the detail of really lie after lie after lie and increasingly desperate acts by the president and the circle of advisors, including the six unnamed co-conspirators that are referenced in this indictment to cling to power and really to prevent a duly elected president from taking office. I guess the big thing here is simply the fact of the indictment itself, that for the first time in American history, we're seeing an American president criminally charged with trying to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. 
The case won't be decided before the election, and even if it were decided, the former president could run from prison legally. So really it's a question now of whether the political system will stop Donald Trump if the legal system won't, at least not in a timely way. So what do you make of that? Yeah, one of the really weird reactions I had on reading this indictment, you know, Charlotte, was a a bit of a wave of nostalgia for the days after January 6th in 2021. Because when you think back on that time, and some of this is actually reflected in the indictment, there was a pretty broad-based reaction across the political spectrum against Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election. And there was shock and anger in the Capitol within both parties about the fact, as you might expect, that a mob had descended upon them and threatened the life of the vice president and resulted in the deaths of several people. And there were Republicans who were really willing to stand up to Donald Trump. And even in advance of that, and again, this is reflected in the indictment, what we saw was state-level Republican officials with no coordination among themselves, simply following their own conscience and resisting the president of the United States when he was calling them and begging them and threatening them to overturn their election results. They refused to do that. I guess, you know, a couple of years on, I'm less confident that that infrastructure is there anymore, that our political system has been further corrupted as Donald Trump has continued to insist on the lies about 2020 and has begun salting people who share his denialism through other levels of the party apparatus. Is the political system now in a stronger place to resist this kind of effort in the future? I don't think it is. Does this have any impact then on the Republican primary process? Well, what we've seen over and over again is so far is that the indictments tend to help Donald Trump. They rally supporters to him and they play so well into his preferred image of himself as the beleaguered, persecuted champion of Americans who also feel like they're getting screwed. So in a sense, that, and this is one reason why I think Donald Trump is not just willing, but kind of pleased to show up in person to be charged because they actually want that video. They want to show him out there with the system, in their view, conspiring against him. And we're seeing that effect again this time with a number of his challengers for the nomination really kind of reluctant to take him on and criticize him. And the fact is that the trials of Donald Trump, whatever sequence they wind up taking place in, are going to dominate 2024. Donald Trump has been spending all his campaign contributions, or a lion's share of them anyway, on defending himself, legal fees for himself and other people. It's bleeding him in that sense. And I think Democrats are hoping this will be a huge distraction for him. I just think that's wishful thinking. I think these trials are going to be the dominant fact of the campaign for everybody in 2024. And he will be campaigning in the courtroom uh, and campaigning on the campaign trail. His legal strategy is his political strategy and vice versa at this point. And everybody else is going to get sucked into that drama. It'll limit the ability of the candidates to differentiate themselves, to debate other issues, And unfortunately, it's just terrible for the country. We're already facing the likelihood at this point of a matchup most Americans say they don't want between these two aged combatants, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Now we're going to see them literally relitigating the events of 2020. Presidential campaigns are supposed to be about the future. 
usually they get decided that way. And we're all just being dragged back into this terrible morass. Idris, what has been the reaction among other Republicans to this indictment? It's been one of closing ranks, even among the people who are running against him. They feel compelled yet again to defend him. Ron DeSantis issued a statement, which was incredibly odd, but is worth reading, in which he says he hasn't read the indictment, but the weaponization of the federal government and the Department of Justice cannot stand, and any trial taking place in Washington, D.C. is illegitimate because all the jurors there have a swamp mentality. Very strange stuff, given not only, you know, basic principles, but also the fact that this is his rival. And, you know, you see that across the board. You see with Tim Scott, he immediately pivoted to Hunter Biden. This is the sort of what about us trope that every Republican throws up, which is odd in its own terms because Hunter Biden is being prosecuted at the moment by Department of Justice that his father ostensibly is the head of. So I think that the two-track tier of justice argument doesn't quite work, but it's one that you see reflected across Republicans and Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, who people remember for in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, saying that Trump bore responsibility, has been firmly in Trump's camp. And he actually said that he thought that this indictment came to distract the public from what they were learning about Hunter Biden. So it engaged in a bit of unfounded conspiracy, which was echoed by other House leaders as well. There are some people who, within the party, who leapt on it and criticized the president, most notably Mike Pence, the former vice president, who obviously resisted Trump on that day and is running himself. All in all, it is not going to move very many Republicans to break rank with Donald Trump. And that includes the people who are trying to campaigning against him, or at least theoretically they are. It is amazing to hear you list that, Idris. And it's not that I'm surprised by the response, but I still find it shocking because you see again and again, even in this most serious instance, members of the Republican Party subvert principle to political survival. So you see this incredible rot, I think, politically within the Republican Party. But what's happening on the state level, John Fassman, that might make this next election different than the one in 2020? Well, there have been a few things that have been happening on the state level. First, broadly, I'm leery of predicting significant changes from any of these. What you have seen since 2020, even since 2018, I think, is the transformation of state-level Republican parties into sort of vehicles for Trumpism in a way that they weren't before. You have Trumpist loyalists running for Republican party chairs. Now, a lot of the figures who were election deniers running for secretary of state, they lost, but you have a state-level party that's much more favorable to Donald Trump. You also have, in places like Pennsylvania and Georgia, a rollback of the mail-in ballot provisions that were there for COVID. The thinking there is that in-person voting might somehow be better for Donald Trump. We'll see what changes these have, but there's no question that state-level Republican parties have become much more Trumpist than they were in the last election cycle. So we spoke about the response among politicians to the indictment, but Idris, is there any evidence that this indictment might change public opinion about Donald Trump? I'm very pessimistic that it will make much difference to Donald Trump's polling position. So at the moment, he commands a majority of future Republican primary voters, according to the polls. What we've seen with previous indictments is that they seem to have buoyed his support or at least not decreased them. At the same time, you see that all of his opponents uh, feel compelled to defend him, and that certainly makes it harder for them to get any breathing room of their own. Overall, I don't expect 
there to be very much of a change to Republican perception. He has successfully convinced a vast majority of the party that this is all the work of a deep state that hates him. And in the general election, which isn't that far away now, or doesn't feel very far away, I also don't think that it will materially change a lot of votes. Partisanship is very hard-baked at the moment. There are polls that show that head-to-head contests between Joe Biden and Donald Trump would be incredibly close. That's taken with two indictments under Trump's belt. Maybe the third is the one that does it. I don't know. But I like the framework that the political scientists, Lynn Vavrick and John Sides, have put together of American politics becoming not just polarized, but calcified and very difficult to move, even when the head of one party engages in conduct that I think only a few years ago, a vast majority of Americans would have declared reprehensible. So that is a pessimistic point to end on, but you can tell people to hope against hope. But I think that after seven years of kind of this ordeal with Trumpism, you shouldn't expect it to go any different way. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking with James Bennett about this, and we spoke very briefly about the great man of history argument, which I think neither of us generally believes in. And then we each moved on with our day. But I was thinking about it a bit more after we hung up. And It is remarkable because, as you say, in many ways, this indictment doesn't change anything politically, but it also just is such a huge deal. You have someone who very well may be the next president of the United States who's charged with trying to subvert democracy. And on your point about the calcification of of politics, I mean, there were these factors that made America fertile ground for Trump. Political polarization, declining faith in institutions, economic stagnation in parts of America that are politically important, the rise of social media, et cetera, et cetera. So you had the ingredients for an outsider to come in and shake things up and for a more populist agenda to take root. But it really was not inevitable that you would have someone try to eviscerate American democracy. And the extraordinary effect of this one person on not just the Republican Party, but on American politics, period, just worth dwelling on for a moment. And we're going to talk a lot more about the campaign as it gets underway, but I think occasionally it's worth just dwelling on the the big picture here because it's easy to get lost in the political weeds. And I think this indictment in its clarity of his conduct is really worth reading. Okay, we are going to move on to the quiz, and I get to ask you guys questions, my two quiz champions. We have been talking, of course, about the fallout of the events of January 6th, 2021. But there are some other things that happened on January 6th in prior years in American history. So I'm going to ask you about those. Question one, which state was admitted to the Union on January 6th, 1912? Nevada? Mm-hmm. Dries? Good guess. Uh, somewhere west... Um... Montana? No. Mm, no. Uh, maybe Arizona? No. Uh, <laughs> should I put you out of your misery? Or what's your final no, answer? I should, just, I, sh- I should just write something down. Uh, Montana. You are both incorrect. It is New Mexico, which became the 47th state. So wrong and wrong. Question number two. Which former president died on January 6th, 1919? Uh, was, it, was it Teddy Roosevelt? Ooh, that's a great guess. That's very good. Do you go with Teddy as well, John Fasman, or someone else? No, I'm going to go with Teddy as well. You are both correct. It was Theodore Roosevelt. He died in his sleep. And Thomas Marshall, who was vice president at the time, said, Death had to take him sleeping, for if Roosevelt had been awake, there would have been a fight. 
Question three. What started three months earlier than originally planned on January 6th, 1974? So what was supposed to happen on April 6th, 1974? Exactly. Um, It's too early for the Olympics. I don't know. The baseball season start on January 6th? Was it the Gerald Ford presidency or something? I don't know. Final answers? Baseball. (laughs) Gerald Ford. (laughs) I don't know. You are both incorrect. The answer is daylight savings time. Congress thought that longer evenings would mean Americans used less energy and help the country respond to the energy crisis. So it passed a bill that put daylight saving time in place year-round. People didn't like the longer dark mornings, and the experiment ended 10 months later with standard time returning during the winter months. So you are both tied. Great. We're sort of tied. I would give Idris 1.5 and me 0.5. I mean, all I did was copy him. Very gentlemanly as usual. Thanks, Idris. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Timo Sila is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. to write for work want to improve bolster your skills with economist Education's six-week online course you'll explore the craft of writing and learn from the economist editors how to engage and persuade whether it's vibrant memos pithy social media posts or storytelling with data and as a listener enjoy a 15% discount with the code writing so sign up now at economist.com forward slash business writing 